is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Kids going to summer camps with other kids. If they're over 12, they're vaccinated maybe. If they're under 12, none of them are. So with the Delta variant out there, what's the risk in camp? Working moms have had it rough during the pandemic. We will look into how rough. Summer Olympics just weeks away. Tokyo declaring an emergency over a rise in COVID cases. Let's start with kids, summer camp, and the Delta variant. Dr. Donna Hollis is director of the Nurse Practitioner Pediatrics Program at the NYU Myers College of Nursing. Doctor, how concerned should parents be? So I think one of the first things parents have to think about, and anyone who lives in the household or comes in contact with children who are under the age of uh, 12, so up to 11 years and 11 months and 30 days, um, when are they all vaccinated? Are the parents, are the, anyone who comes in contact, are all of the people at a day camp or at a camp they're going a sleep away? Or if they're doing school activities, are they all vaccinated? Is everybody, that's like one way to create a cocoon and help those children. The other thing is that the children, depending on the activities, um, they could wear masks still. So if they're indoor activities, um, they should have masks on. If they're outdoor, they probably don't need masks, just like um, the usual. So it sounds like when you're considering sending the, the child away to, to camp, it, it's a lot of kind of let your fingers do the walking. You got to ask questions. You got to figure out what their protocols are. are. They are they doing masks still? Is most of the stuff outside? What are the different age groups? Because if everybody's older, well, maybe that solves that problem if, if everybody's vaccinated. But then you don't always know if everybody's vaccinated. That's really true. Because once they said, um, you know, people who are fully vaccinated don't have to wear masks, it seemed that so many people took them off, whether they were or not. So you do need to be diligent and ask the question. And if somebody's not vaccinated and you've been, be a champion and say, you know what, I took the vaccine, you know, whatever happened, if they had a sore arm, you know, it was good, I'm fine. You know, that's what people have to support other people who are hesitant to take the vaccine, because that's the only way communities are going to really be protecting themselves now. I mean, even though, uh, you know, kids obviously need some, uh, you know, venue, some outlet uh, in order to just get away from their parents and be amongst other kids. Are we, though, still at a too precarious state uh, with this pandemic to send your kids off to camp? So that's a really good question that I don't know anyone has the exact answer to. We do know the Delta variants are very powerful. And, um, you know, there's currently protection for those who have had the vaccine. So if a parent goes off to work or does something and they happen to come in contact, their body should be able to fight it off. So they're not giving it, bringing it home, giving it to their children. But um, the parents, it's going to be parental decisions. And I think asking those critical questions, you know, who's vaccinated and who's not? Um, And, you know, I 
believe that you have to make the decision if you want your children to be exposed to someone who's not vaccinated. That's a problem when the vaccine is readily available to anyone who's 12 and over. Dr. Donna Hollis directs the Nurse Practitioner Pediatrics Program, the NYU Myers College of Nursing. Doctor, thanks. Studies have shown how the pandemic has impacted working moms. Many had to do double duty during the day by getting their own work done and then taking care of their kids at the same time. Some even had to quit their jobs, stay home with the kids. Now they're falling behind in the recovery, the economic recovery. Misty Haganis, senior advisor and research economist at the U.S. Census Bureau, and Christine Beckman, professor of public policy, innovation, USC Price School of Public Policy. Misty, what kind of hit did working moms take and how bad is it now trying to get back in? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, You know, working moms, along with a lot of others, really struggled at the beginning of the pandemic when everything um, shut down. Uh, They had a decrease of about 21 percentage points in um, active participation work. That's improved just as it has for everybody else. Um, But, you know, you can see in the data that when we come up towards um, like last fall, the beginning of, of the school year, and now as we're entering summer, that moms are starting to lag behind again. And so as issues, especially for school-age children, um, flux through changes in school environments, it's been really a struggle for a lot of mothers to, um, you know, maintain work and balance that with juggling childcare needs. Christine, is this uh, something that is likely to be rectified once more children return, hopefully, to classrooms, freeing their moms to go back to the workforce? Or is there something about this that's different and is likely to have a, a lasting effect, regardless of if the kids are back in school? Well, it, it's certainly, uh, and uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's certainly going to help. Um, you know, I think I've, I've talked to working moms who are thrilled to be vaccinated, but what they really want are the schools to open, right? What they really want is their kids to, right. to be able to be out of the house and to be able to to, 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 to be able to work again. Um, so it will, it will help. It, it's it's going to take a while. I mean, it was, it was quite a hit and, and it's not, you know, finding a new job, rebuilding the infrastructure that people had to, you know, schools are opening, but then you have the childcare, the extended family, the, all of the, all of what we call um, in our, in our work, we call the scaffolding of, of childcare that sort of enables people to work because they have their, their children being cared for. That isn't just going to immediately um, come back, right? We'll get the schools that will help tremendously, but rebuilding takes time. And, you know, I think frankly, families are exhausted from, from trying to make it, make it to this point. And, and so sort of the energy it takes to rebuild all of that, I think uh, it doesn't mean it's going to come back in an instant when, when schools reopen. So Misty hit hard, took on a lot of responsibility, sometimes left the workforce altogether, now lagging in the rehiring. If that's continues, do we end up, because, you know, businesses are going to try and do this hiring surge, right? And some already are. If they don't get the candidates, did the whole bunch of men end up getting jobs? And then women are out of it again, even in a few months time, because those jobs have been taken when they couldn't apply for them because the kids were still in school and all these other factors. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a little bit um, more complex um, to, in today's society than uh, perhaps if we were to see this pandemic happen, you know, 50, 40 years ago, 
Um, women really uh, today are breadwinners. They they might not be the lead breadwinner in the household. Um, you know, it's only about one in four households where the woman has the primary earnings for the household um, in dual earner couples. But um, women are essential and critical um, breadwinners within households these days. A lot of our middle class cannot survive off of one income. So, um, you know, I... I think that as we move forward, you know, I think what's happening right now is moms are just really exhausted because even though women have made a lot of advancements in terms of working out in the formal labor market, there hasn't been as much advancement in terms of, um, you know, domestic chores and unpaid labor in the household. So, you know, moms are just exhausted. Um, you know, and one of the reasons why they're so exhausted is because a lot of them are working through um, the dual dirty duty of childcare. Um, so I think as we move forward, you know, it's it's been a stressful time for for mothers. It's been a stressful time for parents and for everybody. Um, but you know, I do think there are some potential silver linings here. I think a lot of the flexibility that's been happening around remote work and telework um, potentially means that more women will actually enter the labor market. You know, we've been pretty stalled in terms of labor force participation for women for the past couple of decades. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens as we move forward, um, how the adjustments that employers make in terms of the demands they have on how their employees do work um, will really impact female labor force participation. Christine, I'm curious, uh, you know, there was a time not that long ago when if you had two you know, job applicants, uh, a potential employer, if one was male, one was a female, might choose the male because their excuse would have been something along the lines of, oh, but if we hire the woman, she's going to have kids and it's going to interrupt her career tra- uh, trajectory. So we'll go with the guy. Uh, And I'm wondering if because of the pandemic, when women had the unfair burden in many ways of being the ones to have to be at home and take care of the kids, if employers, some employers are going to go back to that old stereotype. It's an interesting question. I mean, I think as Misty sort of pointed out, the the, the the fact is incomes are really relying on 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 two incomes and that and so that if that happens it's certainly going to have a really devastating effect um but uh, I mean I guess I've been amazed frankly that in, throughout the pandemic that the the burden sort of remained so solely on women's shoulders um and and it, that, 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 that the pandemic would have been the moment where you know two things should have happened in my view one is we should have recognized that it really was it was not sort of unfair it was you know completely unfair for women to sort of bear that burden of working full time and and caring for children and 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 the, the the norms didn't shift as much right we didn't we really didn't see in the numbers um women getting supported um by by their partners and that is um is going to continue this problem right and the other the other thing i'm really surprised by or actually hopeful by is that is that this uh, the gender roles aren't changing, but maybe we can get better support outside of the home, right? Because all, these were left completely on family shoulders as child cares centers closed, you know, those that can afford very expensive child care, um, you know, very, very few people have access to family leave. So there's a lot of public policies that would support families so that women weren't disadvantaged uh, because there was an infrastructure that would would support them if you know uh, it, whether we're in a pandemic or not so that they can sort of be out there in the workforce and then those employers wouldn't wouldn't need to discriminate because we because we'd have an infrastructure that supported all parents what do you think it is i mean do, do people just not think how much time it really actually takes to do all this stuff to like 
hang on and make sure the whole house doesn't fall apart and take care of the kids and then also do your job. It's hours and hours and hours a day. And it's really easy to see the physical work, right? Who's doing the laundry? Who's doing the dishes? Uh, right? Who's who's ma- making dinner? But there's all the other invisible work that that is really even hard for for couples to articulate and talk about, right? The mental work of of the list making and and making the doctor's appointments, knowing what needs, to, you know, knowing knowing the schedules and, and coordinating all that. Um, and so I think there's even even when when some of the more physical work is being shared more, more easily, the the time it takes for that mental work and that coordinating work really um, it does add up, and it's 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 hard for hard for people to see it uh, and then and therefore share it. Right. Okay. Christine Beckman, professor of public policy innovation, USC, and uh, Misty Haganis, senior advisor, research economist at the U.S. Census Bureau. Thanks to you both. Coming up after this short break, COVID goes for gold in Tokyo. Tokyo is getting ready for the Summer Olympics. Remember, the games were supposed to be last year, but they were delayed due to the pandemic. So now there's a state of emergency over another wave of infections. So does this spoil the Olympics for everybody? Sheila Smith, Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Studies on the Council on Foreign Relations, chairs the Japan-U.S. Friendship Commission. Sheila, where are we with this? I mean, you just plow ahead because there's just a few weeks before the games and then just have nobody in the stands? I think that's the answer. Thank you for having me. So I think it's important for your listeners to understand that the government is going to issue a state of emergency, but that sounds dramatic. But the caseload, let's just say in Tokyo yesterday, was 178,000 cases. Compare that to L.A. County, where the caseload yesterday was 1.2 million cases. So the thing to remember here is the Japanese government response may sound draconian or dramatic, But the cases are going up, but they're certainly not anywhere near us or some other parts of the world. So that's one piece. The second is the Olympics are hard to cancel. You know from Los Angeles has been the host of the Olympics. Uh, This is a huge investment, billions of dollars. And I I think the Japanese estimate is somewhere around, somewhere between 20 and $25 billion already spent. So there's a lot at stake. Uh, The public health is... uh, clearly on the tops of everybody's minds during our COVID-19 pandemic. But the Japanese government wants these games to go forward. Yes, perhaps even without spectators. But uh, what you say is correct about about the uh, the rate of infection in Japan, very low in relative terms anyway. But so is their vaccination rate pretty low. Uh, so what will the optics be in the event they go ahead with this? And their now relatively low infection rate skyrockets, which it could uh, since so few of the uh, people in the Japanese population have been vaccinated. No, you're right. You're absolutely correct. So there's two variables that Prime Minister Suga had his eye on. One was the vaccination rate, which he said would be a million doses a day. And so everybody in Japan would be vaccinated by the middle of October. And the second is, of course, whether or not they could contain the spread of the virus during the Olympics harder. I think, to control. The vaccination rate was expected to be much higher by now. Japan got in the vaccination game late because it it insisted on regulating and testing vaccinations, right, on Japanese people, didn't take the, you know, the clinical trials over here at face value. So they were late to get in on the supply game. And to date, they've got about 20% of their population vaccinated. So that's far behind us, far behind the Europeans. Uh, it's much better than a lot of places in the world. But if you were thinking about hosting these games, it's not where I think the prime minister would like to see uh, his country be. So there's the government and there's the pushback just from people, right? Because there's this whole contingent of people there, the population that haven't wanted this to, to go forward for, for a long time now. 
No, you're right. And I think public opinion polling's co- polling coming into this year, I think the m- late May polls were the most dramatic. About 83% of the Japanese people said they didn't want the games this summer. So they either wanted them postponed to later in the year or maybe another year, or they didn't want them to happen at all. Right now, that's softened a little bit. I think the public has kind of accepted the reality that they're going to happen, but that doesn't mean they're happy about it. And you may or may not know, but there's an election coming up in Japan, a pretty critical election in October. So the prime minister has a lot riding on this politically. So it it really does sound like you mentioned at the very beginning how difficult it is to cancel uh, Olympics. And it's difficult, let's face it, because of money. Uh, Is that what's driving this totally? Is it money? Because it doesn't sound, as you just said, it's not like there's this groundswell of support from the Japanese population. Uh, They seem to actually would be more than happy if it just went away. Uh, Mm -hmm. So is it just an economic decision, period? So I think it, it's bigger than that. I mean, I think the lead up to the 2020 Olympics, which was last year, which is when it was supposed to happen, was really couched in terms of Japan's you know, technological innovation, Japan coming back on the world scene. This was, you know, an echo of the 1964 Tokyo Olympics when Japan rolled out the bullet train and recovery from uh, World War II. So this was largely, there was, a, there was a lot of identity politics, if you'll forgive me for using that phrase. You know, Japan was back. Japan was energized. Japan was looking forward and innovating. And so there there was that piece of the puzzle as well. But of course, we all ran into this COVID-19 pandemic, which derailed last summer's timing. And the postponement was was to say, okay, we'll do it when the pandemic's over, but we're still not over. We're still in the middle of it. So it's one of those damned if you do and damned if you don't, if you'll forgive the expression, kinds of decisions. I think if the prime minister had pulled the plug completely, there would be massive economic loss. Um, and the la- and the lack of opportunity to regain some of that investment, which is what everybody was thinking by postponing it a year. But now we're still in the pandemic. There's no tourists. There's no income from traveling to Japan. There's no none of the the bounce that was going to come for the Japanese economy and society, um, and even politically, none of that is going to come out of these Olympics. They'll be lucky if they manage to get through them unscathed. So I, I think it's one of those decisions that is too hard to make in the time it would have been good to have made it, if that makes any sense. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and looking back over our shoulder, we can say, oh, they just should have canceled. Yeah. But last year, when they did postpone, they thought they still had the opportunity to to realize the full potential of the games. Sheila Smith, Senior Fellow, Asia-Pacific Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. If you're a man and you're still unsure about getting vaccinated, this might have you making an appointment quickly. Doctors and health experts are looking into whether COVID can cause erectile dysfunction. A urologist at the Cleveland Clinic says some men have been coming in saying they got ED after a COVID infection. Another doctor says it could be a symptom of long COVID, but they stress it hasn't been proven that COVID leads to ED. They say observational studies need to be done. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.